Thanks for joining me as we conclude this week on the dangers that we face to discernment and how the healing presence of Christ is really our refuge. So today we, we deal with a, a fourth type of, in a, in a way, you know, a, this danger. We've talked about people-pleasing, which psychologically we might call compliant people. We've talked about those who are avoidant, uh, who close off their lives because of uh, walls around them to protect themselves. We talked yesterday about controllers. And today we want to talk about those who are, who are non-responsives. They, are, they just do not respond uh, in a healthy way or even in um, a giving way to those who have needs or to the needs of others. So again, this is an issue of the soul. This is a spiritual issue. Um, in the New Testament, the idea of soul, uh, the Greek word is psyche, it carries a meaning that is refers to the totality of your person, your physical life, your mind, your heart. God sees the soul as the totality of who you are as a person. This is really what we're talking about, having boundaries around your personhood, not, not walls, but boundaries that breathe so that you can breathe in the good and you can breathe out the bad. So the soul in the New Testament is the spiritual center of life. It's, the, it's, it's where you relate to God. It's where you relate to others. It's where the, the needs are, that you have of being a human are felt. But they're also where they are, the needs are experienced in terms of satisfaction and fulfillment. So the soul is the generator, in a sense, of your desire. It's the way that you experience your emotions. And in many ways, when you, you start to talk about soul and spirit, you're talking about the seed of your personality and the seed of your identity. So the New Testament scholars look at the word psyche and then the Old Testament word nepesh, which is the Old Testament word for soul, and, and it, it, it forms your vision uh, or your sense of self and your sense of personhood. So the idea here, when we talk about caring for your soul, is we're really talking about wholeness. Again, I... I think a lot of people have misunderstood what, what, what is godliness, what is holiness. To, to understand godliness or holiness, apart from wholeness, is to misunderstand the biblical idea of holiness and godliness. See, yourself, in a way, is not just part of your person. It's, it, it is your totality as a person. This is the area of life over which God has given you stewardship. It's the area of life over which 
you are held responsible. You're responsible to others, but you're responsible for yourself. One of the theologians that I really like, um, his name is George Eldon Ladd, great New Testament scholar. He argues, he says that recent scholarship has recognized that such terms as body, soul, and spirit are not different separable faculties of humans, but different ways of seeing the whole person. So there's, there's this very real sense that you can't just separate yourself out and be whole. You can't, you know, say, I'm not spiritual and be whole. You can't say, I'm not physical and I'm not, you know, dealing with my physical and be whole. You can't say, I'm not dealing with my emotional and be whole. You have to deal with all three because all three make you a whole person. So here's, here's one way that David Benner, uh, Christian psychologist, the way he phrases it. He says, if we take Ladd's view that it's a whole, you're a whole person, then we do not have a soul. We are soul. Similarly, we do not have a spirit. We are spirit. We do not have a body. We are body. Humans are a living and vital whole. Unified and whole does not mean that the component parts cannot have an independent existence. Now, I know, you know, this may seem a little bit strange, but when you talk about the unity of the, of the Trinity, that our God is one God, there is this this incredible unity, this incredible oneness, and yet they are still distinctively three persons. In a sense, again, we're talking about how you're made as a person in the image of God. So you're not just a body, and you're not just a soul, and you don't just you know, have a spirit. You, you, there's a unity that makes you a person. And that unity gives you your totality as a person. But at the same time, you can look at each distinctive part and see that they have an independent uh, function, responsibility in your life. We know that the body, the body will be separated from the soul at death, and the soul will remain separated from the body until the resurrection of the body at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that separation of soul and body is only temporary. And it's, it's in eternity, the scripture says, you will once again have an embodied soul and an inspirited body. The difference, Paul says, is that the body that the soul will habitate in will be incorruptible, will be imperishable. No more sickness, no more, no more of the sadness. And, and in a way, this imperishable, incorruptible body is actually the normal state of the body. It's the restoration of a sinless body. So, let's understand the soul a little bit. The reason I'm doing this is because I don't think you can deal with being people-pleasing or avoidant, you know, saying always saying no to people and having a wall around you. I don't think you can... Stop being controlling, and I don't think what we'll look at today is the non-responsive people. And, and all of us have some of these characteristics in us. Not uh, One or two might be more dominant, but we have all of these things. But if we're, if we're not caring for our souls, 
then these responses of self-protection, and in a way self-procurement, and what I mean by that is we become basically the, the broker for meeting our own needs, and everybody else is basically in our life just to meet our needs. That's why people are so controlling. That's why people are avoidant. That's why they're such people pleasers. It's because they see other people in their life as there only to meet their needs, and they're only in their life as long as they do meet their needs. So we looked at this idea yesterday that the care of your soul is, is one of the most important things that can happen, but that the original idea, going back to the Latin, was not just care of your soul, but the word was cura, which literally means cure, the restoration of your soul. So it, it can't just be, in a way, a psychological technique that's going to that's gonna free you from being controlling, free you from the approval and fear of other people, free you from uh, the vows that you've made to protect yourself and wall yourself off from hurt. So this idea of soul is... A working definition is it's your whole person, the, the, including your body. Focus, we focus on the inner world, though, of thinking and feeling and willing. So when God begins to work to restore your soul, to cure your soul, he's thinking about you in your totality, but he has particular attention always to your inner life. So we can't ignore the physical aspects of our inner life, but we can't ignore our inner life just to focus on the physical aspects. So there's a nurturing that all of us need for our inner life. Now, in some ways, nobody, you know, nobody else is going to make you nurture your inner life. You're going to have to decide that your inner life is worth nurturing, and then you're going to have to look around and say, where am I? experiencing life-giving nurture. I mean, one of the reasons that I do these, these morning devotionals with so much emphasis on your inner life is because I, I really believe that, that God wants to restore our inner life, but I don't believe it's a one-and-done thing. I think it is, it's gradual, it's progressive, it's developmental. And you can hear the same thing, but at a different point in your development, and it means so much more to you. So, I, I have taken it on since we had this pandemic, that our inner lives were so important that I wanted to spend every morning in the scriptures, in the word, but nurturing your inner life and nurturing mine with both the spirit and the word. So... When we speak of this, we're talking about caring for each other, but also regarding yourself as important enough to care for your own soul and to realize that wherever symptoms are arising, whether it's people-pleasing or avoidance or control or non-responsiveness, whatever is arising, then what you, what you need to know is that's a soul issue. It's a soul wound. Now, there's, a, there's even a deeper spiritual side to this idea of soul care, and that is the enemy is attracted to your pain. The enemy is attracted to your wounds, and he has a lie that will challenge the goodness of God, that will challenge your own trust 
and dependence on God. He has a lie for the pain that will turn you away from God. And what we've been finding is that the more we attend to our inner life, is that we can turn our face to God, choose God, and there will be healing. Choose self, and there'll be more pain. Now, Jesus himself, it's pretty fascinating to me, because Jesus was into soul care. Jesus was into soul cure. In the Gospels, we see Jesus' primary method was dialogue. He, he spoke with and, and sat with and taught with the people. But what was he doing? Well, he, was, he, he spoke towards repentance. Now, remember what I said, that every wound in your life, every painful place, the enemy has a lie to, to uh, attach to that wound so that you come to an, a conclusion based on that lie that draws you away from God and makes you question the goodness of God and makes you wonder if you should trust and depend on God. So what is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is speaking in a dialogue with people, but he's doing so so that they can see the lies and repent. Now, repentance here isn't that, they pay, that they're paying for the bad that they've done. No, repentance is basically saying, this is a lie and I, and I want to believe the truth. Or this doesn't work, and I need something that really does work. And so Jesus is going for that specific aspect of the soul, which the Bible calls the heart. And, and the heart is a distinctive, it's within the soul, but the Bible presents it as the control center of the soul. It's the place where the lies become guarded. It's the place where the pain and the memories are guarded. So the, here, as well as, it's the place where the truth and victory come. So Jesus wasn't looking for them to just feel sorry for their sins or to, to somehow say, oh, I want to make up for my bad behavior. That's not repentance. What Jesus was doing was to penetrate to the very heart of the matter. See, he was going after their deepest beliefs. He was going after their, their, their hard-won or their, their, the weight that they had given to certain values. He was going after their truest commitments. And he was, and in doing so, you see, he was, he was curing what had been broken down in trust. And so how did he do that? Well, leading them to repent of what was destroying their hearts. And, and getting them to accept and realize and begin to depend on what would, what would flow out of their hearts, he, their hearts had to be converted. And the message of truth and, and, and the conclusions of truth had to flow out of their heart into every sphere of their life. Jesus' message was a message of salvation, of new and abundant life. So it had to confront the messages and you and I have lots of messages in our hearts. Again, this is our soul. This is our total person. But the control center of our total person, the Bible calls the heart. And so Jesus, he, you know, brought this message of salvation to the heart. But it's for the total person. And the message was of a new and abundant life. And in everything he spoke, he backed up 
with what he did. His words and his deeds went together. It's so interesting that though he did at times be very direct with his instruction, as we mentioned before, his most frequent method was indirect and even at times paradoxical. Because what was he doing? He, uh, I think in King James it says something. He taught, he taught not in anything but parables, kind of an idea. Well, what is a parable but a picture? And why would you teach in a picture instead of just teaching a kind of didactic, you know, propositional truth? Because you know what the picture does? It goes to the heart. The picture goes to the right hemisphere of the brain. It goes to the place of value. It goes to the place of worth. This is so important that we understand Jesus was a carer of the soul. Jesus was a curer of the soul. If you have thought in some way that Jesus has come to make you miserable or Jesus has come to destroy your life, no, Jesus has come to give you life. And in his giving of life is very specific in terms of helping you to reorient your soul so that your heart flows with life. I mean, think about this with me. Colossians 2.3 talks about how Jesus Christ is the one in whom all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hid. Jesus Christ was the greatest treasure of his Father. He was offered to us. He was given to us. But if we recognize what happened when that treasure was given, the religious leaders, the political leaders, the governmental officials, what, what did they do? And even what did the crowds do? Well, they turned on him. And they trampled him into dust. They turned on him. If you look at the Gospel of John, they turned on him the entire you know, time, but especially that last week, that holy week. But what does Jesus do? Well, he goes to the cross willingly. This is, this is him saying, look, I've come to care for and to cure your soul. As he was dying, what does Jesus cry out? Well, he quotes Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why is he quoting that? Well, this is, this is a key thing. He's not quoting just to describe the, the forsakenness that he's experiencing, though that is true. He's quoting it because he knows the people will think of the whole psalm. So in the middle of that psalm, verse 13 says, Bulls surround me, roaring lions, lions surround me. They open their mouths against me to tear their prey. What is that saying? Well, Jesus is explaining by quoting Psalm 22. He's saying, Jesus has been cast to us as the curer of our souls, the carer of our soul. And the people had no idea who he was, nor did they expect him to come, especially not to come as one who would die on a cross and pay for our sins. So what did they do? They tore him apart. That's what the psalm says. So why was he willing to do that? Why would he quote this psalm that says, Roaring lions surround me, but I give myself to them. Why was he so willing to be trampled? Why was he so willing to offer himself? Here, here's an interesting thing. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, it talks about don't, don't share your pearls before swine. And yet Jesus himself shares his pearl, his treasure, 
himself with those who have no idea the value of what he's giving to them. Such a powerful thing. What, What would make him share his pearls before swine? Well, because he loves us so much. And in order for us to stop being swine, kind of animalistic in our approach to life, he had to pave the penalty of sin. He had to come and live the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died, so that God, who is just, can at the same time accept those of us who recognize we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. Jesus paid so that, so that we didn't have to pay. And so that the loving embrace of God could surround us like it had always surrounded him as the Son of God. Here's what it means to repent. That you see him. And you see the beauty of this. And you're melted by it. You're melted. Your heart is melted by the beauty of Jesus. See, repentance isn't just, I got caught and I don't want the consequences. Or I believe there's punishment and I don't want to be punished. The only time you truly repent is when you see the beauty of Jesus and nothing else is as beautiful as he is to you. Then what happens is you start to transform from the inside out. This isn't just soul care. This is soul cure. Because if Jesus is the ultimate beauty in your life, more beautiful than sex, more beautiful than success, more beautiful than any other relationship, then you are free and your soul is free. But the problem is if you have placed anything else as more beautiful than Jesus, then you're a slave to that thing. And in a way, what happens is, is instead of living, being a living soul, you live like an animal driven by appetites, empty of glory, but hungry for glory, driven by your belly, driven by your instincts. You have to get people's approval. Or you have to shut yourself off so that you're not hurt by people's rejection. You have to get success, so you have to control. Your agenda has to be realized or else you're nothing. You're so afraid of people that you can't let some other person jilt you, you know, If something else is your pearl other than Jesus, then you're not free. You're just driven. You're just being moved around. Even though you may think you're in control, you're just being moved around like a slave. The soul issue is is so important. What is most beautiful? Have you been captured by his beauty? That's really the issue, and out of that will flow a transformation in the totality of your being. I, I'm, a lo- I, I'm a lover of old hymns. Certain writers are especially important to me. One of those is John Newton. He wrote so many hymns other than just Amazing Grace. But I love this, I love this phrase here. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. See, I can remember when I I just served God out of fear. I served him because I thought if I worked hard enough, I would get his approval. But his beauty 
in a way, crushed that aspect of how could I ever attain to that beauty. So I had to, I had to enter into relationship with this beauty that is Jesus by faith and because of his grace. And now I do the same things I did trying to gain God's favor. I read the word, I, I preach, I teach, I witness, I do all of these things. But it's my pleasure, not just my duty. Another great hymn writer was William Cowper. He wrote these words. To see the law by Christ fulfilled. Not me fulfilling the law, but Christ fulfilling the law is what Cowper's talking about. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his parting voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. This is what happens when you're truly captured in your soul and your heart begins to say, this is my treasure. So how does that work out in terms of these different aspects of dangers to seeing, in a sense, spiritual discerning, discernment is seeing everything through the beauty, the captivating beauty of Jesus. Well, we've said that you can't take on the responsibility for others. But there's a group, or there's a, there's a, a way that people have dealt with responsibilities by becoming basically non-responsive. And these are people who basically are saying no to love, and no to the responsibilities of love. In the Boundaries book, it talks about individuals exhibit the exact opposite of the pattern in Proverbs 3.20 say, where it says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is good when it is in your power to do it. So again, notice you're responsible to the person and you're responsible only for what's in your power to do it. Even in Romans 12, 18, it says, If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there's a nice balance there. I'm responsible for me and for my part in this, but I'm only responsible to them and to their part. You see, I can talk all day about the beautiful concept of the beautiful beauty of Jesus, but if that doesn't come out in me lowering the walls of my heart so that my resources, what's in my power, what's in, what actually is in my control is now at the disposal, not only of Jesus, but of the people Jesus assigns to me in my life. So I'm called, if I really am enamored with the beauty of Jesus, I'm called to care about help and within certain limits to to. Be a carer of the soul of others that God places in my life and, and to believe for the curing of the soul of others. To refuse to do so when we have the resources is a boundary conflict. So I know this is, uh, you know this is kind of a technical part here, but this is so important. People who are non-responsive, and this is where my non-responsiveness has often come in, is, is there's a criticalness, there's a judgmentalness, a, a, a sense of superiority, inferiority, or a sense of feeling like I've got to reject them before they reject me, or I've got to criticize them before they can criticize me. And Jesus in Matthew 7, 1 through 5 talks about judge not lest you be judged, and then he talks about this part about the speck in your brother's eye versus the log in your own eye. 
And one of the things that Tim Keller says, and, and this is really, it's really interesting. He says that by nature, we're like Mary and Martha. And, and so Martha wanted to, you know, make Jesus something to eat. And she wanted to fix Mary because Mary was, you know, daydreamer, not doing her work, whatever. And so what you, what you kind of see is people fall into two categories. Some, some people are fixers. So they like to analyze and tell people what's wrong. And then there are other people who are more feelers. They can just kind of sit there and emote. But in some ways, they're not able to accomplish much of anything. And so Jesus is, is, is bringing about a, a, a way in which we're neither fixer or stuck in our own emotions. He's saying there is a speck in your brother's eye. He's not saying never evaluate anybody else, never look at the negative in somebody else's life. But he says, you're not going to be able to help them with their negative if you haven't dealt with the log in your eye. For example, I don't want a blind doctor doing surgery on me. And that's basically what Jesus is saying, is that by not dealing with my own soul issues, I can't help somebody else with the speck. In other words, he's saying, do not dismiss somebody because they have a speck, but recognize that you can't help them if you're critical. You can't help them if you're judgmental. You can't help them if you see yourself superior and they as inferior. Basically what he's saying is, you've got to live a gospel life that says everything in my life, anywhere I have soul repair or restoration, it's because of grace. I received it as a gift. So now I see this brokenness in my brother and my sister's soul. That's a speck compared to the log that's been taken out of my own eye. But you see, if, I, if I'm basically feeling inferior, insecure, whatever it is, then I'm not going to be able to help somebody else. The Apostle Paul talks about this transformation. You see, when he was a rabbi... And he, was not, he had not met Jesus. Do you know how he treated people? If somebody was superior to him, all he saw them was his competition to his goal to be the greatest rabbi that ever lived. And so he had contempt for them because he, uh, they were in his way. So he had a log in his eye. But he, he had a log in his eye for those who were less than him because he disdained them and thought them to be nothing. So what is it? You know, what is it that Paul teaches about this? Um, he teaches, you know, when it comes to anybody else, think more highly of them than you do yourself. Well, how can you do that unless you've taken the log out of your eye? Unless you've realized I'm neither inferior nor superior. And where I need soul care, others need soul care. So the speck in somebody else's eye doesn't dismiss them from my life or from relationship with me. And as far as it depends on me and where I have the power and resources to do it, I will be a soul carer so that we can see soul cure. Well, the critical spirit is one non-responsive. It's self-protection, but it's critical. The second, and you could spend a whole lot of time, I'm just introducing this idea, but it's basically people who are so absorbed in their own desires and their own needs that they exclude others. So at least this is a form of narcissism. 
Have you ever been around people that no matter what you say to them, they make it about themselves? Well, that's what this is talking about. This is, this is basically a non-responsive. You pour out your heart, you're weeping, and they start to tell you how, how much worse their life is and you should get over it or something. Or they treat you in some way as if, you know, everything you do comes back to them. See, there's, a, there's an aspect of being non-responsive when you do not have a margin in your life to care for others. Well, let me say it in the way the uh, boundary says it. Don't confuse self-absorption with a God-given sense of taking responsibility for one's own needs so that one is able to love others. Paul says there's a balance. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. See, I know the people in my life who enter my world, and I know the people who are self-absorbed. And the people that are self-absorbed in my life are draining. They, they take, but they don't give. And so this, in a way, what, what, what the Boundaries book has helpful is it says, this is a non-responsive person. Because when we are taking care of ourselves, and we're taking care of our own souls, guess what happens? What we're going through, God's going to bring people in our life that we can help so that our own pain is redeemed and becomes a place of strength for us. Part of your healing of your soul is when you begin to participate in the healing of others. And the areas you've been made strong from weakness in become the areas that God uses with the most anointing in our lives. Again, this is a soul issue. You can't change merely by changing your thinking or through great acts of will. But you change by saying, you know what I love most? I love the Lord Jesus Christ the most. So I'm going to ask that we just take a moment to pray here. We ask God for a clear mind, clear heart. Lord, where are you doing soul cure in my life? Where are you caring for my soul? Because I think if you look at that place, you will see then these other people where he's taking the log out of your eye so that you can help them take the speck out of their eye. Not self-absorption, not self-protection, not critical spirit, but soul care and soul cure. Because that's who Jesus is in you, the one who cares for your soul and the one who cures your soul. In Jesus' name, amen.